Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. Well, even though the justices didn't hear arguments this week, they still made a bit of news with new cases, emergency orders, and rejected appeals. We'll chat about those, and we also wanted to give a preview of the upcoming November sitting, which actually kicks off October 30th, not November. And that's all because we're going to be off next week, and we won't have an opportunity to highlight those cases before the arguments. Yeah, there are a couple of interesting disputes that the justices are going to tackle during the next sitting. But first, Greg, uh, before we look ahead, let's talk about what the justices were up to since our last episode. So you magically saw the future and highlighted one case that seemed likely to be added to their docket, and as anticipated, it was. So tell us about that case, Greg, again. Sure. This is the big regulatory fight that tests the so-called Chevron doctrine under which courts defer to regulators, regulatory agencies, when they are interpreting ambiguous statutes and their interpretation is reasonable. The court is considering overturning that doctrine, which would give more power to the courts, less power to the agencies. They'd already agreed to take up a case testing that principle involving a group of herring fishermen who are challenging a rule that might require them to pay observers to be on their their boats while they're fishing. And the problem or the issue with the case they had already granted is that Justice Jackson was recused from it because she was involved in that particular case when she was a D.C. Circuit judge. And so what the court did is it granted another case out of a different court, the First Circuit, and Justice Jackson will be able to take part in that. So we will have a nine-justice court deciding that issue. Yeah, it always seemed weird to me whenever they granted that case that they granted such an important issue with one of the justices being recused, whether or not that will matter to the ultimate outcome, it still seemed a little a little funky to me. Yeah, it, it may not matter in terms of the ultimate outcome because we're still looking, and the question will still be, are there five justices, probably the five conservative justices, to overturn the Chevron Doctrine? Right. Uh, well, so that was one of four new cases that the justices added to their docket for the term, with the others being another bankruptcy case, woohoo! another one on for- forfeiture, this time criminal forfeiture, and finally a dispute over everyone's favorite the Federal Arbitration Act, which happens to be one of the court's favorite topics, too, for reasons unknown to me. Uh, so, Greg, by my count, that brings the number of cases up to 39. So another term without a seemingly full slate of cases. Yeah, and of course, the the, the court will continue to add cases probably through about the middle of January. Uh, and so we don't know the full scope of the term. It's possible we'll have a case involving Donald Trump at some point. Another thing we don't fully know yet is how the justices are going to respond to congressional and public demands for an ethics code. We've gotten some hints from individual justices, most recently Justice Barrett. Kimberly, what did she have to say? Right, Greg. So Justice Barrett was speaking at the University of Minnesota Law School on Monday, and she said she thought it would be, quote, a good idea for the justices to adopt a formal code. Uh, She went on to say that it would make things clear to the public, uh, the rules that the justices are playing by. And I think that makes her the fourth justice to talk approvingly about a high court ethics code, along with Justices Kavanaugh and Kagan and the Chief Justice. So, Greg, why is this taking so long? Well, that's a good question. Probably the answer is it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> is it? Y- you know, 
<laughs> well, they might think it's complicated. You do have some questions. It's not just a, a matter of adopting the code of conduct that applies to lower court justices. For example, the issue of recusal. Different at the Supreme Court because you can't have another uh, justice to kind of swoop in and, and take your spot the way you could if you were a federal district judge or a federal appeals court judge. There's also the, inquest- the question of enforcement. The Judicial Conference is the body that handles complaints about lower court judges. And the question is, is there going to be a body that handles complaints if somebody says a Supreme Court justice uh, has not followed the code of conduct? Of course, Greg, that wasn't the biggest news out of Justice Barrett's speech. No? No, no, no. Uh, Justice Barrett talked about her struggles as a working mom, saying that she probably experiences the dual roles much like every other working parent. But she talked about the juxtaposition of being a mom to young children and her work on the highest court of the land. And so there was one day uh, last term when Benjamin had been choosing some music, including it's, it's not so much, you know, the opera classic, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> and I get to the court, and in the court, as you're walking in the, the hallways in the, the basement area, I have portraits of all the justices who have served before, and they're very dignified looking. And all along in my brain, don't listen to that song if you don't want it to be in your mind all day long. I'm walking down looking at these dignified men and who let the dogs out on the... So. Who let the dogs out? Who? Okay, please don't put that in the... Please don't put that in the thing. All right, everybody, you are welcome for implanting that song deeply into your brains today. But one more thing to talk about before we get to the November sitting. We had another order in a case about ghost guns. Wait, what? Didn't we already do this? Yes, yes, listeners, we did way back in August when a divided Supreme Court allowed the Biden administration to enforce rules regulating build-at-home ghost gun kits while a challenge to those regulations worked its way through the federal courts. So why? Why are we hearing this again, Greg? Because uh, apparently it wasn't over. Uh, Just by way of background, what this would do, what this regulation does, is it subjects these gun kits to the same requirements as fully assembled firearms. So dealers have to include serial numbers. They have to conduct background checks, that, that sort of thing. Back in August, as you said, the Supreme Court let this uh, rule uh, be in effect. And at the time, I'm going to get a little lawyerly here, what the court did was it stayed a lower court decision that vacated the rule. Lower court had had tossed out the rule. And the challengers to the rule, after the Supreme Court did that, and they did that on a five to four vote, the challengers to the rule then went back to the district court. These are manufacturers, gun manufacturers, among others. And they said, okay, do something different, district judge. We would like an injunction that says they can't enforce this rule against us. And the district court said, okay, granted that injunction. The Fifth Circuit uh, affirmed, although it it limited that, that, that lower court ruling to some degree. And the Biden administration went back up to the Supreme Court, asked the Supreme Court to vacate the injunction, toss out that lower or block that lower court ruling. And the Supreme Court, without any public dissent, said, yep, that's what we're going to do. So they essentially said, we meant what we said before this rule is going to stay in effect while this litigation goes forward. Why doesn't the Supreme Court just sort of put on the end of its like orders now? Like, we really mean it. We're 
like for reals. That would be helpful. I would include that quote <laughs> in any story I wrote about a Supreme Court order. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit on this podcast a few times about the Fifth Circuit, and this is another case, as you mentioned, that comes from them. I wonder if you think that it's notable, as I did, that this time around there was no noted dissent, even though the original order back in August had been a divided one. Yeah, it, it, it probably is, and it probably does reflect the fact that more than just the five justices who were in the majority the last time are now saying, okay, we decided this. Maybe we were on the losing side of this, but we decided this. So lower court, get with the program. This rule is going to stay in effect. And ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, can actually enforce it while this litigation goes forward. Maybe. We'll see. TBD. Let's see what the Fifth Circuit does next. All right, let's turn to a discussion of the November sitting. Probably the most noteworthy case that the justices are going to hear is United States versus Rahimi, the first Second Amendment case to come back to the court since they established the history-focused test for challenging gun laws in Bruin. Greg, remind us, what is going on in U.S. versus Rahimi? Sure. So the Bruin case that you referred to was about the right to carry a weapon in, in public. The Supreme Court said, yep, you have that right under the Second Amendment. This is a case involving a federal law that says people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders can be barred from having uh, guns in their possession. And the Fifth Circuit said, under the logic of that Bruin decision, that law is unconstitutional. The case was a win for a guy named Zaki Rahimi, who prosecutors say is uh, is is a kind of a is a rather bad guy. He uh, allegedly participated in five shootings, threatened another woman with a gun, and all that was after a judge had imposed a restraining order to protect a former girlfriend whom Rahimi had attacked and threatened to shoot. So that's a factual case. The, the legal debate is over the history test that you you suggested. Bruin said that modern-day gun laws have to have a historical analog to be constitutional. And the Fifth Circuit said, well, we looked at you know, laws back around the time of the founding, and there was nothing like this on the books at that time, and so it, there's no analog, and therefore it's unconstitutional. The Biden administration is arguing at the Supreme Court that that is way too exacting of a test, that uh, even if there was nothing on the books specifically focused on domestic violence, because we as a country weren't as focused on domestic violence, there are plenty of laws out there that say that people who are dangerous, who are a threat to others, can be disarmed. That's sort of the way the debate is framed coming up to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, there's also a possibility the court will sort of look at, look at the particulars of this law and consider whether it's too broad, whether it's too blunt of an instrument, whether it's sweeping in people who aren't actually dangerous. Uh, it will be an interesting test and undoubtedly the first of many, many Second Amendment tests we're going to get over the next few years. Okay, so Greg, one thing that people have asked me about with regard to this case is um, whether or not Rahimi has actually been convicted of these crimes, was there some sort of fact-finding that he was dangerous? Uh, what's really the issue? Are we trying to go after all felons? Discuss, Greg. So he was not convicted. This is not about somebody who was convicted of a crime. Whether there was any fact-finding that went into this is to some degree a matter of dispute. Those questions are at least in the background, whether they are actually going to be front and center in, in, in determining whether or not this law is constitutional, not clear to me. 
Yeah, I think somebody described this case to me as probably the best case that the federal government could have gotten in front of the justices to really test out the reach of this historical test. And I think um, one thing that's going to be really interesting to me is to see sort of how the conservative 6-3 court really spells out the way in which originalism is supposed to play out here. You know, is it something that is going to seem to undo what many people think are really common sense gun restrictions? Or is it going to be able to, to be one of these cases where we say, aha, originalism can make some sense sometimes. Um, and so don't panic. This isn't taking us back to like the 1700s. I'm going to be watching that. We'll see. Yeah, no question. This is a much, much better case for the government than some of the other cases percolating out there about, say, nonviolent felons. So another interesting pair of cases that's coming up in the November sitting, which starts in October again, is uh, a social media case, or actually two social media cases. Uh, these are actually going to be argued on Halloween uh, when Kimberly is going to be dressed as, what are you doing this year, Taylor Swift? Oh, oh, no. I was going to be dressed as Justice Breyer. <laughs> well, Kimberly is going to be dressed as Ju- Justice Breyer um, <laughs> in the courtroom. Uh, cases about whether... Pub- Would I go as anything else? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what else could you go as? <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say what these cases are about. I'm going to let you, Justice Breyer, tell us what these cases are about. Tell us about O'Connor Ratcliffe and Linkey. All right. So these are actually an issue that had come up to the court before involving President Trump and his Twitter page and uh, his blocking of users on that Twitter page. And the question for the justices there and here is whether or not that you know social media account is actually state action and that it violates the First Amendment amendment to block people. Donald Trump is no longer part of this case. Instead, it's about local government officials out of California and Michigan who used Facebook and Twitter to post about things like COVID or uh, discussions of race in school. And, you know, things went exactly how you would imagine things like that would go. Some comments from members of the public who the officials got fed up and decided to block them. And the question here is, can they do that without running afoul of the First Amendment? And really, the justices are going to be looking at, is this really a personal account? Is it a public account? The lower courts here came to two different decisions, sort of applying a slightly different test. So I think it's probably going to matter uh, which test the justices use. Um, Craig, I have one question about these cases. I've got a lot of questions about, um, I feel like we've been seeing like pairs of cases come up and sometimes they make sense to me why they're pairs of cases rather than consolidated. And sometimes it makes no sense to me why we're going to get separate, probably nine hour arguments in each of these cases. Why are these two cases not just consolidated into one? Well, do you want my cynical reason? (laughs) Uh, Always. My my cynical reason might be that they need cases. Um, And (laughs) this is a way of filling out their their argument calendar. I think you know these two cases better than I do. And and as you mentioned, there was different reasoning of the two two lower courts and, you know, Perhaps it it they feel like they can capture different different angles with with each of the two cases, but uh, at a minimum, it it fills up their their argument time. Okay, well, this is really um, not something that listeners need to know, but it's a personal beef of mine that last Halloween was the affirmative action cases. Again, two cases that were not consolidated but dealt with the same issue. I think, you know, that was because Justice Jackson was recused in one, but they went on forever. 
and I was late to trick-or-treating, and I'm going to be mad if they do it again. That's why you need to wear your costume into the argument so that you'll be ready to go. (laughs) All right. So finally, we have another IP case, Um, this one on the constitutionality of protecting trademarks that some might find, I guess, distasteful. This one does have to do with Donald Trump. Greg, tell us how this case fits in with previous cases, one striking down a federal law that prohibited disparaging marks in the case of the ban The Slants, and another one striking down the limitation on immoral or scandalous marks in the case of a um, colorful clothing line. Well, the biggest distinguishing factor between these cases, as you said, you alluded to, Kimberly, is, of course, that this one is about a trademark Uh, attempt to register the trademark for the phrase, Trump too small. Uh, This entrepreneur, Steve Elster, wants to uh, register this trademark at the federal level. Uh, He says he wants to put it on T-shirts. The problem for him is there is a provision in federal law, federal trademark law, dating back decades, that bars the registration of trademarks that identify a living person without that individual's consent, You'll be shocked to know that Donald Trump has not consented to this trademark. Uh, The the D.C. Circuit said this provision violates the First Amendment when the trademark includes criticism of a government official or public figure. The entity that is arguing against that, essentially on the side of don't trademark that disparaging phrase about Donald Trump, is, of course, the Biden administration. They are arguing a bit like they did in those previous cases that you alluded to that uh, this whole registration of a federal trademark is just a condition on a government benefit. It is uh, not something that raises a First Amendment concern. Based on the, the, the previous cases that you mentioned, this may well be an uphill fight for, for the Biden administration, but they are certainly doing all they can to keep Donald Trump from being mocked. You know what the worst part about this case is, Greg? In those other two cases, there were these brilliant, funny, entertaining amigas briefs. I didn't see anything like that in this. There was so much material, and I really think that the amigas bar really, like, dropped the ball on this one. I'm I'm talking to you. You know who you are. (laughs) These are some some difficult times in our society that we're dealing with, and we we really need the comic relief, so it's unfortunate. All right. Well, the justices will hear three other cases during the upcoming sitting. And of course, they will continue to add new cases and release orders in emergency requests. For all of that, you can follow along with all the latest news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.